0: Well, if you've been here the last uh, few weeks, I know uh, many of you have, some of you haven't, but we are uh, three weeks into a series that we're simply calling Kingdom, calling Kingdom. And, and part of the reason that we're doing this, that we're looking at uh, the scope of God's redemptive work from Genesis to Revelation, hitting uh, the high points, the, the turning movements in Scripture, um, is because it's pretty clear when you look at our culture and the church particularly, in our culture, what we're dealing with uh, and the way that we deal with it as individuals as well as uh, collectively as churches, that we've lost a sense of God's story. We've lost a sense of who it is that's at the center of human history, who it is that's in control, and who we are as His people. Uh, We're going to be in the book of Exodus today, uh, beginning with Exodus chapter 1, looking at what is the central event in all of the Old Testament. The central event in all of the Old Testament. We've seen God's work in creation. Him creating out of the goodness of His Trinitarian nature. So that there could be a people and a creation that uh, could engage and share in the beauty and the wonder and the delight of Father, Son, and Spirit. Eternally one. Unified in glory and purpose. We saw the fall, what happens when we're given opportunities and choices. Any of you who've had children understand the reality of that still at work in life today. You don't have to teach your children to throw food. They'll do it on their own. You don't have to teach your children to hit one another. They'll do it on their own. There's something fractured in the human condition as a result of the fall. And we can't fix it. We can't fix it. I can't fix it in you. I can't even fix it in me. We need something or someone who can do that? We saw last week wondering if, if God's uh, intention and his purposes for human community with him at the center had been forever broken. But we saw it wasn't, that God came uh, to one man in one region at one time, Abraham, and he made a covenant with him. And he promised Abraham that he was going to be his God and that through Abraham and his wife Sarah he would create a people to be his people and through those people eventually God would bless the entire world and we're looking now at this pivotal event in the Old Testament the Exodus not just because it is central to the Old Testament and to the understanding of God's kingdom purposes unfolding in Scripture but because it is central to our understanding of how they're unfolding still. How God is still at work. How he's at work in your life and my life and our life together. And how he's at work in his world, accomplishing his purposes. And I I want us to think about this, uh, this morning, the Exodus, as a play in four acts. A-C-T-S, acts not sure how to say that without it sounding like something you throw or chop wood with. But a play in four acts. Now, I know uh, that a play in a drama typically has three acts, but God can do what he wants. And so we're going to throw a fourth on here. And we're going to look at at the Exodus through the life of Moses in four acts and see what we learn about God, who he is, and how he's moving. Not just in Moses' day, but in ours. Let's pick up the story in Exodus chapter 1 beginning with verse 6, and before I read, I'll just tell you this. What we find here, the background, is that God has been with his people, with Abraham and his descendants, all the way down to his great-grandson named Joseph, and due to uh, situations and circumstances in the world, a famine and human sin and family sin, Joseph winds up growing up primarily in Egypt. And he finds Pharaoh with favor there. But it's not the promised land. It's not Canaan. And Joseph eventually passes away, and we wonder what's going to happen. Let's look at verse 6 of Exodus chapter 1. Now Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation died. But the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful they multiplied greatly, increased in numbers, and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. Then a new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have come; have become far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them, or they will become even more numerous, and if war breaks out, will join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. So they enslave, this new pharaoh enslaves the Israelite people. He enslaves the Hebrew people of God. And he has a a two-pronged plan for their subjugation. One is enslavement and brutal work. And the other is infanticide, is the killing of Hebrew baby boys when they're born or when they're being born. We'll see a little bit later, that a couple of courageous midwives thwart that plan, and Pharaoh goes around that and says, that's okay. Once the boys are born, throw them in the Nile and let them drown. So this was the culture of the time in Egypt. But I want us to pay attention to the wording in verse 7, because in the background of this wording is the book of Genesis. Verse 7 says that in spite of Joseph and all his brothers dying, The Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. They multiplied greatly, increased in numbers. And if you think back to Genesis 1, chapter 28, we see that language there. Genesis 1, chapter 28, it was the commission that God gave the first man and the first woman. They were to be fruitful and multiply. Listen to it. Verse 28 of Genesis, chapter 1. God blessed them, that is the first man and woman Adam and Eve and said to them be fruitful and increase in number fill the earth and subdue it do you you hear that language Genesis 1 is happening in Exodus 1 we find it again in Genesis chapter 9 if you remember after the flood God brings judgment on the earth because of the growing sin of mankind but he delivers Noah and his family and he gives them a commission a command after the flood Genesis 9, verse 1, Then God blessed Noah and his sons, saying to them, Be fruitful, and increase in number, and fill the earth. Fill the earth. Now we find this language repeated in Exodus chapter 1. They were indeed exceedingly fruitful. They multiplied greatly, increased in numbers, and became so numerous that it was alarming to their Egyptian overlords. Question here. Who's at work even among the people of God in a foreign land now beginning to be subjugated by the Egyptians? Who's at work? God. God's at work. God is at work. When it looks like it's over. It looks like it's over. There's no promised land. They're not in Canaan. They're in a foreign land. And they're being subjected and oppressed and killed off and we wonder where is God where is God tell me you haven't ever walked through a season of your life where you wondered where is God tell me you haven't ever looked around at circumstances around you maybe circumstances even in the church and wondered where is God it looks like it's over But I want you to remember something, that God was way, way ahead of his people, as he always is. If we think back to God making the covenant with Abraham, which we talked about last week, if you go back and look at Genesis chapter 15, where God tells Abraham to bring him the animals, to cut them in two and place them opposite one another, and God takes the covenant walk through, we find this in verse 12 of Genesis 15. As the sun was setting... Abram fell into a deep sleep, and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. Then the Lord said to him, Know for certain that for four hundred years your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and that they will be enslaved and mistreated there. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterward they will come out with great possessions." God foretold this centuries before. Who's at work? God's at work. God's at work when we don't see it. God's at work when we don't understand it. God's at work when we don't know it. In ways and places and people our minds could not conceive of. And God is always for His people. And I'll tell you what we find throughout Scripture as well. God is always on the side, on the side of the oppressed, of the slaves, of the poor, of the disenfranchised. Never of the oppressor. Gary Edward Schneider, an Old Testament scholar, said this about the actions of Egypt. He said, the Egyptians attacked the life God gave his people. And in doing so, they were defying the Creator. It wasn't just God's people they were attacking. They were spitting in the face of God himself. God has always intimately connected himself with his people. If you remember in Acts chapter 9, the the conversion of Saul, the apostle Paul, the risen Lord comes to him and he says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Well, Saul wasn't persecuting him. Saul was persecuting the church, his people. But Jesus said, when you persecute my people, you persecute me. You come after me. This is what we see in Act 1 here. And what we realize is that God's always working. God's always working. It doesn't matter if you can see it or not see it. For some of you who've been praying for people in your life for months or for years, keep praying. You never know when or how God is going to move. But we do know from Act 1 here of the Exodus story that God's always working. We see that even in a foreign land, His people are beginning to fulfill the Genesis mandate from chapter 1, reconstituted and reinstated and reaffirmed in Genesis 9. We find from Genesis 15 that them being in Egypt and not the promised land at this time is no surprise. And we know this. We we can say this. Like we would all amen to the truth that God's never surprised. But it's hard to remember that God's not surprised by a global pandemic. He's not surprised by how it affects families and economies. He's not surprised by who's going to win the election in our country. He knows that already. And on and on, we could go. God's always working. We see something else, though, as Exodus unfolds. We see that God's always sending. God's always sending. Part of what happens here is that God's not just working, but he's working through his people. And if you are a saved person, you are a sent person. There's no way around that. You're not saved to swim around in the bucket of the church and be dumped out after death in heaven. You're saved to be sent to be men and women who live differently, who can love differently, who have a different value system than our world does or our nation does or your neighbor does who doesn't know Jesus Christ the way you do. God's always working. And he's always sending. There's a little baby boy named Moses that's born. And Moses, through some interesting circumstances, is saved. And he's actually pulled out of the Nile River by one of Pharaoh's daughters. And he's raised in Pharaoh's household. And he's truly a man between identities. He's not fully Hebrew, but he's not fully Egyptian. Some of you know that reality. I don't really fit here, and I don't really fit there. This was the world that Moses knew. And he goes out one day, and he sees an Egyptian overlord, slave master, beating one of his Hebrew brothers. And in anger and in rage that had probably been building in Moses over years, he kills the Egyptian, hides his body, hides his body. It comes out, though, and Moses has to flee. He flees out into a distant land. And at a well, he meets a group of women that are there. And they're being run off by shepherds. They're there to get water, and the shepherds are are abusing them and pushing them away so they can do what they want to do there. And Moses sends the shepherds packing. Apparently, Moses was a feisty one who could hold his own. And they go back to their household. And the father of these young women is impressed. And in this honor, shame culture. He says, hey, go invite this Egyptian man who saved you, who helps you, and bring him in. And he ends up marrying Zipporah, one of the men's daughters. And he's herding sheep for his father-in-law. Bit of a fall from the royal house in Egypt, is it not? And this is where Moses is. We're going to pick up Moses' story as an adult in chapter 3, beginning with verse 1. I'm going to read verses 1 through 10. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. Horeb, Mount Sinai, same location. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire, in flames of fire from within the bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. Let me pause there just for a minute. We we are intrigued by the unusual or the different, aren't we? Anybody ever see the movie that came out just a few years ago called The Greatest Showman? The Greatest Showman? Like eight of you and me? All right, The Greatest Showman. It's one of the few good musicals ever made. Hugh Jackman stars in it, and it's it's loosely based on the life of P.T. Barnum. And what Barnum realizes, what what Jackman's character realizes is that there are all kinds of, of oddities in the human race and people are drawn to the macabre and the different and the bizarre and they'll pay to see it. And he begins inviting these people in who are way too tall or way too short or way too this or that or the other. And they've been on the outside of society and never had a place to belong and he brings them in and all of a sudden they have this community that they share. And people do begin coming, and it's the birth of the modern circus there. It's interesting. You ever been driving to downtown Atlanta, pick the highway, right, and you're backed up on traffic, and you think there must be a wreck ahead. And when you get ahead, you realize, no, the wreck's on the other side. We're going this slow because everyone on this side's rubbernecking. They're looking over there, and they're slowing down to stare at the flashing lights like children. Anybody ever had that experience? Yeah, there's something. So Moses goes over. He's like, look at this bush. It's on fire, but it's not being consumed. Verse 4, when the Lord saw, when the Lord saw that he had gone over to look. Let me just remind you this morning that God sees you. God sees you where you are. He knows the anxiety that you have this morning. He knows the wounds you carry. He knows your hopes. He sees you. God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. This is language again pulled from Genesis 22. Genesis 22, when God tests, when God tests Isaac. Do you remember that? He says, here I am. Part of what the writer of Exodus wants us to know is that this is the covenant God at work. This is God, the father of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he's at work. Do not come any closer, God said. I'd be like, you got it, right? A voice starts talking to me out of a bush that's on fire but won't burn up. I'm cool with keeping a distance. Do not come any closer. Take off your sandals for the place where you are standing is holy ground. And I just want to say for any maybe theologically uh, unformed potential worship leaders watching or with us, that doesn't mean that we have to lead without our shoes on up here, right? Uh, when I was a, a young guy starting in the ministry, occasionally I would run across such a worship leader. Aside from being gross, um, having to lead in barefoot, it's just bad theology. Take off your sandals for the place where you're standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. Remember, Moses is a murderer. Moses is a fugitive. Moses is a man caught between two worlds. Moses truly is a man without a home. This is part of why those who exist on the margins in the church today, immigrants, people coming out of cultures where they've been oppressed, have so much to teach us in the church. They're able to read this with eyes that most of us simply can't read it with. Verse 7, the Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery Of my people in Egypt, I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them out of the land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. Now, you know up to this point. Now, let me just say this too. And we've, you've heard me say this before. Whenever you run into these phrases, God hears, God sees in the Old Testament. This is just anthropomorphic language. This is human language applied to God to help us better understand his relationship with his people. It doesn't mean God forgot and then he remembered. God wasn't seeing and then he was. It's code for the fact that God's about to act. It's like when a parent says, I saw what you just did. There's always something about to happen on the other side of that. God's getting ready to act. And you know at this point, Moses has got to be cheering. That's right. That's right. You're the God maybe I heard whispers of growing up. You're the God in my soul I knew was there. And you're getting ready to punish the Egyptians and to set the people who deep in me I sense I belong to free. And he's cheering, and then God says in verse 10, So now go. I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. You can just imagine Moses going, Come again. You're talking to me out of a bush. Can you not do this on your own? Right? I'm good here. I'm good here. I've got a wife. Maybe you don't know how I left Egypt the last time, but it was in a hurry. But friends, God's always working, and God's always working through his sent people. Could God have done this without Moses? Could he? Absolutely. But God works through his people. This is what's so tragic when you and I just decide to to sit down and begin to receive. Receive. Instead of receiving and going out and pouring out and coming back in to receive, that we can go out and be spent and poured out. That's where growth and maturity and formation happens in our lives. So God sends Moses. Moses tries everything in the world not to go. Oh, God, I can't talk very good. And God said, who gave mouths? I gave mouths. But God, I can't because of this reason. I can't because of that reason. And then I love it. At the very end of it, Moses just goes, God, could you just send someone else? He just runs out of excuses and basically just says, look, I just don't want to do it. I don't want to do it. But he doesn't win with the Lord there, just like you don't win with a police officer on the side of the road. Just say, thank you, you're right. Get your ticket and move on. So Moses goes. God sends Aaron, his brother, with him. And God does a series of miraculous events. And signs and wonders, one after another, after another, through Moses and Aaron. And Pharaoh does not relent. His heart's hardened, in fact. And then there's that final terrible night of judgment, where God prepares his people in that great picture of what is to come in Christ and says, Prepare yourselves. Because this night I'm going to send the angel of death across the land of Egypt. And I'm going to take the firstborn of every Egyptian household. The firstborn cattle. The firstborn of cattle even. Like, Lord, why do you have to go after the cattle? He goes after the cattle. He tells the Egyptians to sacrifice a lamb, sacrifice a goat, smear the blood across the top of the doorways. And the angel of death will pass over their homes. But that sacrifice of life and that covering of blood covers them because here's what you're going to find out very very soon it is not just that pharaoh is obstinate and rebellious toward god it's that his own people are obstinate and rebellious toward him the real question of ex of exodus the book is how can god's people stand in his ever-growing presence in their midst as rebellious as they are but this night of judgment comes and pharaoh relents before this pharaoh had just been doing pain management you can go no you can't you can go no you can't sometimes what you and i mistake for repentance in our lives is simply pain management and when things return to normal so it is the sin and the attitudes that we had before now this won't be up on the screen but i want to read just a few verses from exodus chapter 14 because pharaoh says that's fine go And in keeping with Genesis 15, the Hebrew people are are able to plunder the Egyptian society. And they take what they want. And then Pharaoh changes his mind. right? He says, no, we're going to pursue you. And all of a sudden, this people who had been slaves looks back behind them, and the most powerful military force on earth is in pursuit. Now, this will be up on the screens, but just listen. Exodus 14, verse 10. As Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up, and there were the Egyptians marching after them. They were terrified and cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us to the desert to die? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone, let us serve the Egyptians? You you notice the human tendency to sit in what is known and comfortable even when it's rotten? Like a baby in a dirty diaper, I know it smells, but it's warm and it's mine. This is not new. This is the tendency of human beings. They're saying, why didn't you leave us there? Slavery was so preferable to what we're experiencing now. We also have that tendency to look back with rose-colored glasses to times that were not as great when we were living them. All right, the rest of verse 12. It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. Verse 13, Moses answered the people, Do not be afraid. Some of you just need to hear that this morning. Do not be afraid. Stand firm and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. Verse 14, the Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. They weren't very still. They rushed. Verse 21 says that Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and all that night the Lord drove the sea back with a strong east wind. You see the picture of God working? But God working through his sent person, sending his people out of slavery to be his people. God's always working. He's always sending. And we see here that God's always delivering. In sending Moses, he's also delivering Moses from a life of confusion and meaninglessness. He's delivering his people now, and he's still delivering people from the bondage and slavery of sin and darkness in our day through his sent people. And turned it into dry land with a strong east wind and turned it into dry land. The waters were divided and the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with a wall of water on their right and on their left. The Egyptians pursued them and all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and horsemen followed them into the sea. During the last watch of the night, the Lord looked down for the pillar of fire and cloud at the Egyptian army and threw it into confusion. He jammed the wheels of their chariot so that they had difficulty driving. And the Egyptians said, let's get away from the Israelites. The Lord is fighting for them against Egypt. We see a picture here of people looking in at God's people when they're being God's people and following him faithfully. And they notice that somehow in ways they don't understand, this God they don't know is at work on behalf of his people. Not one of them survived. God's at work. God is delivering. And the people of God celebrate this. When you look at the next chapter, I just want to point out a couple of words. Look at verses 10 and 11 of Exodus 15. In this song of Moses and Miriam. Miriam is his sister. Verse 10, but you blew with your breath. This word ruach, breath, in Hebrew, is the same word for the wind. In verse 21, that God used, that God sent to deliver his people. It's the same word for the wind that God sent then to bring judgment on the Egyptians. But you blew with your breath, and the sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who among the gods is like you, Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, working wonders? Now look down and don't miss this in verses 19 uh, through 21. When Pharaoh's horses, chariots, and horsemen went into the sea, the Lord brought the waters of the sea back over them. But the Israelites walked through the sea on dry land. Then Miriam, the prophet, Aaron's sister and Moses' sister, took a timbrel in her hand, and all the women followed her. With timbrels and dancing, Miriam sang to them, "'Sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted.'" Both horse and rider, he is hurled into the sea. Do you realize that many, many, many of these women singing and dancing before the Lord this day were women who had had male children ripped from them after birth and thrown into the Nile and drowned? And now they've seen the judgment of God come on their oppressors, drowning them. Do you notice the irony of the judgment there? Can you understand maybe why the women were driven to go even past what the men and women together were doing in celebration and dance and sing to the faithfulness of God? After about three months of traveling, they arrive at Mount Sinai, Mount Horeb. Uh, Moses brings them back to the mountain where he had first encountered God. Makes sense, doesn't it? He's like, whew, we made it out. Now what do we do? Gets back there, has... Another encounter with God, chapters 20 through 31, God gives the law through Moses. And time and time again, if you're familiar with Exodus, the people show themselves to be stubborn and unwilling to faithfully follow God into the future he has for them. See chapter 14 for a good example of that. And time and time again, Moses stands in the gap for them, interceding with God on their behalf. And God's anger that burns against them at times relents. And we we miss this often, but we find women filling in the roles of heroes in the first few chapters of Exodus. Shipra and Pua, the Hebrew midwives who defy the order of Pharaoh. And basically they say, we can't get to them. These Hebrew women just give birth too darn fast. We don't have time to kill the babies. It's hard for us to imagine the danger you place yourself in In a state of ultimate rule where a dictator calls the shots when you defy them. Moses' mom and sister put their own lives at risk to put Moses in the river in a basket take care of him. The sister follows Moses and then sees again the daughter of Pharaoh pull Moses out of the water. She goes around and shrewdly says, hey, I know a, a Hebrew woman who could nurse this child and through the sovereignty of God in ways that only God can do. Moses' mom gets to come into the palace and nurse him and he comes out to her and she nurses him back at her home it's a remarkable scene there and we see zipporah when moses is on his way to egypt zipporah his wife god's getting ready to kill moses because moses full commitment to him through circumcision through that covenant sign has not been done moses is living outside of that covenant relationship and zipporah steps in and saves her husband So ladies, you're not the only ones in here who've stepped in and saved your husbands. There's a long biblical tradition of this happening. Often we miss that. But note the order of Exodus and law giving. That's important. God did not first give the law and then deliver the people. He first delivered the people and then gave them the law. This is the grace-centered heart of God that we see from Genesis to Revelation. He redeems And then he teaches us how to live as redeemed people. He delivers. And then he teaches us how delivered people live. He saves. And then he sends us that others might be saved. Final act we look at in Numbers 13, Book of Numbers, chapter 13. We find that God's always working, God's always sending, God's always delivering. The last thing we see from the Exodus story is that God's always preserving. He is preserving his people, and he's preserving his purposes in this world. Look at Numbers chapter 13, verses 1 and 2. The Lord said to Moses, send some men to explore the land of Canaan. They're pushing right up against the boundary, right up against the border of this new land which I am giving to the Israelites from each ancestral tribe, send one of its leaders. Now verse 26, they, they go out, they recon, they scout out the land, and they come back. Verse 26 says, they came back to Moses and Aaron and the whole Israelite community at Kadesh in the desert of Paran. There they reported to them and to the whole assembly and showed them the fruit of the land. They gave Moses this account. We went into the land to which you sent us, And it does flow with milk and honey, just again as God had said it would. Here is its fruit, but the people who live there are powerful. The cities are fortified and very large. We even saw descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites live in the Negev. The Hittites, Jebusites, and Amorites live in the hill country. And the Canaanites live near the sea and along the Jordan. The Jordan River marked the boundary of the land of Canaan. Then Caleb silenced the people before Moses and said, We should go up and take possession of the land, for we can certainly do it. But the men who had gone up with him said, We can't attack those people. They are stronger than we are. And they spread among the Israelites a bad report about the land they had explored. Gossip and divisiveness at its finest on display here among the people of God. They said, The land we explored devours those living in it. All the people we saw there are of great size. We saw the Nephilim there. The descendants of Anak come from the Nephilim. We seemed like grasshoppers in our own eyes, and we looked the same to them. We seemed like grasshoppers in our own eyes and we look the same to them. What follows here is such a tragedy. God's anger burns toward his people. He's very very frustrated with their continual lack of faithfulness. Their continual unwillingness to follow him and to trust him in all uh, in light of all that they've seen him do, not just deliver them from the Egyptians, and then drown the Egyptians but provide manna, provide water as he's getting ready to do this more and more and more as they wander because that's going to be what God does with him. God says, fine, God's getting ready to destroy them and he just says, Moses, I'll make your name great and I'll make a people through you. We see the language of Abraham starting again. And Moses says, no. And Moses intercedes on behalf of the people. He stands in the gap and God says, fine, but I tell you this, this generation that will not move forward in faith is going to die. None of them are going to go into the promised land. I can wait. I'm eternal. I've got time. That's my paraphrase. But he says they're going to wander around. I'm going to let Caleb go in because he believes me. He believes in me. He'll follow with faith. The rest of them cannot turn forward and follow me. And it's such a tragic scene. But that's what happens. Forty years, God allows them to wonder. And an entire generation dies who could never see themselves as anything more than what they had been in the past. They were still grasshoppers in their eyes. They could never be anything but slaves in their own thinking. And then God takes his people into the land that he promised them. But Moses doesn't get to go. Some of you know this. God allows Joshua and empowers Joshua and commissions Joshua to take the people in. And it seems unfair that Moses has traveled and led these people, traveled with and led these people all this time, and he doesn't get to go in. And I don't know exactly why. God doesn't unwrap all of his reasoning for that, but I can tell you this. Moses was leading a people who'd been taught to worship their leader as a god in Egypt. And maybe, and this is a maybe, But maybe God knew if they continued with Moses for too long and saw too much, they would begin to attribute the mighty works they saw to Moses and not God. I don't know. But I do know this, that God's faithfulness in the past should prompt us to trust Him in the present and trust His faithfulness in the future. Ralph Waldo Emerson said it this way, All that I have seen teaches me to trust the Creator. All that I have not seen. That's the life we're called to live as God's sent people. Always looking forward, always moving forward. And the ultimate way, don't miss this, the ultimate way that God is working and sending, delivering, and persevering is through Jesus Christ. As the band makes their way back up here now and we prepare ourselves just to respond in worship to God and to God's Word. I don't want you to miss Jesus at the center of the Exodus. The Exodus is this great picture of God delivering his people, of the angel of death passing over them because of the sacrificial blood smeared on their doorway. And eventually one would come through this line of Abraham and his descendants whose blood would run not on a doorway but down a wooden cross. And that blood, when we trust Jesus in faith, covers us. And God's judgment passes over us. Not because of who we are inherently, but because of the righteousness that God attributes to us through Jesus Christ. Jesus is the true and better Moses. Jesus is the one standing in the gap between the people and the Lord. Jesus is the one who now mediates the new covenant between God and us as his people. I don't know where you are this morning, but some of you need some deliverance in your life. Some of you have lost faith that God can do what you've seen him do in the past or what you've seen him do in the lives of others. And this morning, God's invitation is to trust him to trust Him with your life individually, to trust Him with our life as a church, and to be willing as found people to go out in the power of the Holy Spirit and help find other people, to be willing to save people, to be sent people. That's God's call to us. That's His kingdom purpose this morning. Let's stand and pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that whether we are eight in this room or we are eighty, God, whether we're able to be here in person or we're watching online, Father, that in humility we would place ourselves before you, God. We would repent Father of our sin. We would repent of any apathy or rebellion that lives in us, God. That lives in me. And God, with passion and with faith that you provide we'd say yes to you lead us God and we will follow make us your sent people in and through the power of Christ I pray in his name amen